Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast in which we attempt to talk about film within the confines of a particular theme that changes from episode to episode. I am Joe Gastineau, and I am joined once again by a mighty fine blog's uh, Edwin Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Uh, okay, I'm recovering from a flu, so uh, my voice is a little crackly and sexier than usual, so I think we're uh, in <laughs> for a good show. As long as it's sexier, uh, I'm, I'm all over that shit. That's the um, note we had from the executives. More sexy. Um... This week, the theme is finally of, uh, of my choosing, and I've chosen the theme of television uh, for us to run with this week. Um, so we'll be discussing uh, films about television, television spun off from films and vice versa. And then later on, we'll be getting into the kind of big issue of uh, the relationship that TV and film uh, actually has with each other. Um, but we kind of can't really avoid it just because of uh, when we're recording this um, and, uh, you know, I did plough five hours of my life into this. Um, But we are recording this on the day after the Oscar ceremony. Um, You didn't see it, did you, Ed? No, I was asleep because I needed sleep. And you've you've got, like, a job. I work in the arts. I can kind of uh, get away with uh, pulling that kind of shit. Um, But I watched the whole Sorry Affair. Um, What did you think when you 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 found out who had won? Uh, I was both pleased and bored. (laughs) Because um, I I read them and I was like, oh, and that's nice that the artist won so many, but not really surprising. Like, I I wanted the artist to win over, I don't know, incredibly loud and extremely close. Wait, extremely loud and incredibly close. Extremely close close and incredibly... Loudly far... And loudly incredible. Yeah. But, um... When I just like looked at the rest of them, also I was a bit disappointed because I posted my predictions over the weekend, and I usually get about two thirds right, and I was off on quite a lot of the technical ones. Well, um, it, it was it was a very uh, predictable affair. I, I think I twigged once. Hugo started picking up all the technical ones. Mm. I thought, well, it's not nominated in the acting categories. Yeah, um, it's going to lose out to the artist somewhere. Yeah, uh, and then it, it kind of the same thing happened with the Social Network last year, didn't it? With uh, it started picking up the. Uh, you know the kind of the editing, the sound, those kind of caper, music, yeah, music ones, uh, and then kind of bombed out on the on the on the big ones. So in that way, it was kind of, you know, as balanced as they make it. Mm. I think it's a fix, isn't it? Yeah, it felt like it. They went um, equal numbers for Hugo and the artist, five for five. Convenient. For yeah, very convenient. So that uh, Hugo gets to, you know, walk away with its head held high, despite being. Uh, something of a massive uh, financial failure at this point. Yeah, I have to say that the telecast of the Oscars was uh, was quite shit this year. Mm. Um, it would cut every now and then to um, like a montage of like the, the stars of today. You, you, you Tom Cruise's, your you, you Philip Seymour Hoffman's or whatever, uh, your Robert Downey Jr.'s talking straight to camera in a really kind of serious, grave way about um, the magic of movies. Mm. But it was done a little bit like the people watching the telecast had never seen a film before. So they were like, oh, oh, these films, these sound great that you're talking about. Uh, but they were just talking really generally about them, and it was just, I don't know, kind yeah. of a bit of shit. And whenever they do stuff like that, you do kind of feel that, uh, you know, when they 
don't have, as they haven't for the last few years, the uh, honourable or the uh, honorary Oscars included in the main show anymore. They hand them out, you know, months in advance. You kind of think, you could cut some of this shit and have, you know, someone come up and accept an award. Or, you know, you could have the Muppets come on and perform, you know. Well, the Muppets did uh, a kind of link. Oh, that's nice of this. And it it went down like a wet shit. It was horrible. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah, it wasn't great. Um, and overall, the I know that this Oscars was cobbled together mm. because um, the the kind of superstar team of Eddie Murphy and, and Brett Ratner had to drop out. Um, Billy Crystal did a did a job, mm-hmm. um, didn't let anyone down. Right, Mr. and Mrs. Crystal must be very proud. Um, but it was pretty flat all round, yeah. and the only real laughs came well from my point of view when uh, Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis presented an award together. Um, both brandishing crash symbols in each hand, uh, and um, when uh, Chris Rock came on, uh, and um, kind of belittled voice acting and animation, but it was very funny. Yeah, I it would would be. He's a he's a terrific guy. Yeah, um, but it it's was just a shame that he seemed to alienate everyone in Hollywood the one year that he uh, he yeah. I mean, it wasn't a Letterman style disaster. No, but, but I remember Sean Penn being an absolute prick to him. Oh, yeah, because... Because uh, he kept making fun of Jude Law. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, Christian Bale turned up last night sporting a preposterous accent. Oh, really? As far as I know, he's Welsh. Yeah, well... But he was, oh, lava duck, roll out the fucking barrel. He, it was it was, it was it'll be whatever. Uh, it'll be whatever part he's playing at the moment. He, uh... He's playing Steptoe by the sounds <laughs> of it. It was, yeah. it was crazy. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was a, a night kind of light on controversy... Uh, apart from the, I didn't. I missed the red carpet because I'm not a shallow knob. Yeah. Um, but uh, Sasha Baron Cohen caused the scene by uh, spraying a Ryan Seacrest with uh, some ashes that he claimed to be uh, belonging to the great dictator, yeah. uh, King Jong Il. Yeah. Um, but um, I wasn't quite sure whether it was a stage thing. I imagine it probably was. But apparently, he... Ryan Seacrest, and from people that I know have seen it say that Ryan Seacrest acting isn't that good ah. and he disappeared for a while and came yeah. back with a new tuxedo and suit yeah apparently he was led away at a very leisurely pace which made me think they were expecting something to happen but maybe they didn't quite know what he was going to do is that a um a deliberate thing from the academy to try and maybe spice up the Oscars this year because it's been a bit I think so and they're not trying to make it the MTV movie awards that's not uh, yeah, they, not he didn't. They didn't lower him ass first onto Eminem. Eminem's face, yeah. Um, but um, while we're on the subject of television uh, uh, this evening um, and the Oscars, mm-hmm. here's a segue for you. Um, it was lovely to see uh, two televisual heroes, um, Jim Rash, the Dean from Community, and pansexual imp, pansexual imp, <laughs> um, and uh, Brit. Uh, Mackenzie from uh, Flight of the Concords both scooped Oscars. Yeah. So now we can say that Jim Rash and Britt Mackenzie are Oscar winners. I know, that's quite uh, quite great. It's just a shame that they've uh, finished shooting on this season of Community because I'm sure they would have uh, tried to cram it in. As, as the, tried, <laughs> pun, tried, intended, pun intended. They uh, would have found some character. way of making a gag about uh, the fact that he's an Oscar winner. I mean, the thing is with the Community is he his outfits are spectacular and mm. I really wish he would have gone the way that South Park Boys did when they got nominated for their Oscars and they turned up dressed as J-Lo and people <laughs> like that. I think he sh- he really should have uh, busted out a bit. His Lady Gaga outfit in that episode of Community is I think that absolutely something. should have been what he wore. He should have gone as Gaga. The one thing that surprised me was um, Meryl Streep winning for the Iron Lady because... Didn't the, see the, that coming. I thought, 
when um, like she was nominated, she seemed. I thought she was definitely going to win. But then over the ensuing weeks, it seemed everyone was saying that Viola Davis was going to win for the help. And so I thought that because that film was, you know, a really big success in comparison to The Iron Lady, that that would count in her favour. So I, that was uh, turned out not to be the case. They went, uh, they went for the uh, reliable uh, choice. Old, old faithful. The old faithful. Um, in terms of the best actress category, which was a really poorly put together category, Bernice mm. um, um, yeah, Bejo got... N- relegated to best supporting actor even though she's the female lead of the artist yeah um had she been in that category would she have run streep close i reckon i reckon she still would have been behind um viola davis just because uh she um she was nominated for doubt a few years ago and i think a lot of people kind of felt that she uh that, that they missed the trick by not giving it for that performance so it seemed to be a sense maybe that it was her turn as well right okay the other thing that surprised me was uh, and delighted me was Jean Desjardins winning because I thought that it would be um, Clooney's year, primarily because when I went to see the um, the Descendants on Saturday, um, there's a scene where he has to say goodbye to his comatose wife, and a single tear drops down from his eye, and I thought nah, that's your Sinead O'Connor moment. Yep, that's what's going to win you your, your Oscar, and I thought that that tear would have clinched it. But yeah, I mean. But apparently tap dancing, you know, that'll, that'll win you an Oscar every and time. And a dog. A tap dancing and a dog. Um, I didn't see the dog at the ceremony. Um, there have been pictures of them afterwards, because I've seen a picture of, of uh, Jean Desjardins looking uh, incredibly charming, holding Uggy in one hand and the dog and his Oscar in the other. So, you know, he must have been there. What a man. He's, he's the, uh, the dog has been their main asset, I think, in the PR campaign over everything else. Um, I want to talk about, because uh, it's quite odd that, uh, quite convenient that the relationship between film and, and um, TV um, has very much kind of in, been in flux over history. Um, in the fifties, it was very much seen as a, a massive threat to television and uh, to film. Sorry, and and didn't quite turn out that way. Yeah, although that it, that was one of the things that pushed people towards, you know, cinema scope and things like that. You know, that's when you start to get the big historical epics of the uh, of the era because um, studios felt that people weren't going to pay to see, you know, um, sort of intimate comedies or uh, sort of fairly straightforward drama when you can get that on television. What mm. they, you need to offer is grandeur and scope, which is why you start to see things like, you know, Ben Hurst, Particus, uh, uh, there's... Um, there's one about the pyramids that I know Martin Scorsese is a big fan of, but the name of which escapes me. Land of the Pharaohs. Right, okay. Um, I thought you were going to say Stargate. No, Stargate. <laughs> and so I think, uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, television was a big a big threat at the time, or considered that way, and that led to kind of quite a sizable change, really, in the industry. Um, but then, of course, you know, the expenditure on those sort of things was what led to the sort of the new Hollywood taking over when those films proved not to be successful so it's quite interesting really that, that is that you can, you can trace a causal relationship between the rise of television and then films kind of American films kind of rise in the 70s to uh, and also the collapse of the studio system mm. uh, kind of came around that time in fact the 50s were kind of a uh, uh, a kind of uh, 
turbulent turbulent time i like that yeah for for both industries and uh i, I suppose um television i don't know what i'm saying um <laughs> but yeah it's over well, fif- time. Fif- 50s was uh generally considered to be the first golden age of television because that's mm. when you start to see the rise of um sort of televised plays uh people like sydney the met were you know very active in that he directed the first version of uh, 12 angry men as, as a televised play before he then went on to make the film version uh, marty as well originated as a play for television written by paddy chayefsky speaking of uh, paddy chayefsky a interesting segue into talking about um what i think is probably widely regarded as the best film about television and uh in my view one of the best films full stop mm. um is uh, Sydney Lumet's network yeah it'd be in my top 10 what gets me every time i see it is i don't expect it to be as prescient as it is yeah and you think well it was made in 76 uh, 75 um and you know reality television uh, those kind of things weren't was really about 20 years away from yeah. that and still it touches a nerve every time and i think all you have to do is watch someone like glenn beck Mm. um on fox to realize that the kind of idea of a slightly mad kind of prophet on television uh isn't too far-fetched and in america it's it's a kind of grinding reality yeah and especially the idea of sort of pre-packaging madness essentially to to sell it to a mass audience um is very much the case of with uh beck well, especially when he did his uh nine twelve nine twelve project, project yeah which was uh frightfully bizarre um and when you see him you know when there was talk of him doing a presidential run you know uh posit himself as some sort of demagogue where he's like getting people to march in washington and things like that you think you know you're just a a man on television who's got a very skewed view of the world. I don't understand why you have the influence that you do, which is kind of the scary thing about television, really, is you can offer people that level of access to people's homes. But, yeah, Network is so kind of um, on the ball with what it says about television and what it says about fame uh, and what it says about kind of media consumption. that It makes something like, and this is something I kind of uh, realised the other day when I saw it again, makes the Truman Show look incredibly stupid. Because mm. I remember when the Truman Show came out, and I think reality TV was, was just kind of coming a few few years later. I think you've got the something like The Real World yeah. has, has started, but that's kind of the only like massive example, because it's pre-Big Brother. and uh, Yeah, um, but that came out, and I remember everyone saying, oh, this is, this is going to be prophetic. And, mm. uh, but it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's so stupid. Um, why would anyone watch a baby for 20 years? <laughs> and th- this is weird, because I remember when it came out, and that was nominated for a glut of Oscars and, mm. and things like that. And at the same time, Ed TV came out, a uh, Ron Howard film, which uh, was seen as the kind of trashy kind of uh, nephew of the Truman Show, as it were. But Ed TV, despite the fact that it has a Bon Jovi theme tune, um, is much more accurate about what reality television kind of became yeah uh it kind of follows a, a schlub in a bar who you know just kind of is unremarkable and uh and yeah just kind of everyone kind of gets obsessed with him rather than a kind of plain simpleton like truman mm. which i never yeah. really understood 
Yeah, I ca- yeah, that that's kind of one of the logical, the massive flaws at the heart of the Truman Show. It's just like people aren't going to watch a show every uh, every single day, which is just literally a child growing up, and then uh, like it would just have really long, boring seasons. Yeah, it would be the dullest TV show of all time, and yeah. the Ed Harris character in that is just oh, it's so stupid, and yeah, he lives in the moon. <laughs> Fuck off! Yeah. yeah, it's certainly nothing compared to the the Faye Dunaway character in Network, who is uh, such a brilliant encapsulation of kind of the. I don't think it's it's just specifically to specific to television, but that sense of greed that kind of exists from wanting to kind of push for ratings or success at any cost, even mm. if it means hiring someone to murder someone on screen. Yeah, uh, which I think remains. You know, incredibly pathetic. Maybe not in you know to the extent that TV producers have ever had anyone killed on screen. Although who's to say they haven't, <laughs> um, or that it won't happen? Um, Careful what you say, Ed. But uh, the um, I think if you look at the tactics that are used by people who produce, for example, the Jersey Shore, mm. where essentially they get them to sign really elaborate contracts, which basically say we can represent you however we want on screen and we can ply you with alcohol uh, for the sake of entertainment. You know, that's the same sort of desire, really, expressed in a quite uh, quite horrible and reprehensible way, really, that you're essentially saying it's okay for you to treat real people as playthings and as uh, objects to be manipulated for entertainment, even though it could be really harming their health or destroying their lives. Where's the logical conclusion of, of that um, approach? Because, I mean, we saw uh, reality TV shows, Big Brother X Factor, people voluntarily putting themselves into a structured uh, mm-hmm. kind of talent contest, I guess, or popularity co- contest. And now I think it comes from uh, American shows like The Hills and things like that, doesn't it, where it's now, I don't know, they kind of what you used to call a docu-soap. Yeah. Um, where's the natural conclusion for this to go? Is it? killing someone live on air uh, I don't I, I think people will stop quite before they get there but I do think that maybe a more extreme version of reality show maybe something involving people being unwitting uh, figures in a game in, in a reality show uh, and maybe someone or maybe putting it to a public vote um, what happens to them <laughs> Uh, well, like they're executed. Not like they're executed, oh, but is the Running Man? That's what I'm getting. That's where I'm getting at. Is the Running Man the logical conclusion? Well, I think um, Dar- Darren Brown did some uh, experiments last year, and one of which was he got people to watch live footage of of a man out on a bar, and he basically gave them options, which were, you know, um, he can he's going to talk to this woman. She can either respond to you know his advances. Uh, or she can throw a drink in his face, so, you know. And and every time he basically made the crueler option seem seem more appealing, you know, in the way he phrased it. You know, that'd be the more fun thing to see happen. Mm. And it ended with him giving them the option of uh, them get, having be kidnapped. Right. Um, uh, at which point he ran out in front of a car and was hit by a car. That point was fake. Right. Because um, there was a disclaimer at the start of it saying that you know for the next 15 minutes everything you see is going to be real mm-hmm. and then 
the 50 minute mark ended with like this guy going home and being sort of uh, unaffected uh, but what we the audience were shown and what the people in the studio were shown after that point was you know sort of five minutes of something fake happening which is this guy runs away after people try to kidnap him and he gets run over by a car wow. um, and you know it seems like that's the idea of, of that get kind of reality show of just basically saying you have the option two options to either make this person's life slightly better or to make it worse you know st- and, that all, that, and people always go worse yeah th- that doesn't seem too far outside of the realms of possibilities assuming that you know they can keep uh, enough control of other environmental factors that someone doesn't get hit by a car I gen- like watching it I genuinely would not be surprised if someone tried to pitch that idea at some point well I'd like to talk a little bit about the Ferris Bueller TV show which was simply entitled Ferris Bueller and um are you familiar with the television programme Diagnosis Murder? Yes, I am. Uh, and the actor Charlie Schlatter, who plays Jesse? Yeah. Well, he played Ferris Bueller in the TV series, um, which, and also his sister was played by a, um, I think, post-nose job, Jennifer Aniston. Right, okay. Um, so she picked up the the role vacated by the pre-nose job, Jennifer Grey. <laughs> um, and... Uh, I watched some of this today, um, and I have to say that uh, it's a televisual marvel and a lost kind of gem, because he plays Ferris Bueller as the real Ferris Bueller, and in the first scene, he talks about how disappointed he was with the film that was made of his life, and (laughs) goes into his... He's in the, the exact same room with all the same posters and everything up on the walls, and he goes into a cupboard... And pulls out a cardboard cutout of Matthew Broderick, and says, "Oh, I don't believe, I don't agree with this casting." And he gets a chainsaw and cuts it up. Right, I'm not joking. Yeah. And then we get the kind of, and then when he's doing the chainsaw thing, uh, Jennifer Aniston's complaining about the noise because she's trying to curl her eyebrows. And then the, you meet his kind of whole family, but um, kind of just watching it. They're all on YouTube. All these clips. Um, uh, watching it through. Uh, Ferris Bueller is played as like an, a real kind of unlikable cock end and all the other kids like refer to him as kind of being like a bit of a geek and like a really unpopular kind of douchebag <laughs> and when a film Ferris Bueller's Day Off is based entirely around the likability of the main character and they just strip that out and make him just a, a, a kind of throbbing cock it really just robs everything about it. I think it lasted seven episodes. Surprised it lasted that long. I know. Yeah. Well, it was in the day, probably uh, in the before the days of you know sweeps, uh, mm. where it would have been kind of brushed under the carpet very quickly. Yeah. But sweet Jesus, it's awful. Um, but yeah, on you know what on YouTube, what it's like. You go to find a video down the right hand side. You get the list. Uncle Buck, the TV series. Uncle fucking Buck. Um, and they, I mean, obviously the film isn't you know a kind of social realist piece no <laughs> but the the tv series like a wacky comedy with like a, a dance routine like kind of high energy theme tune with uncle buck played by someone nowhere near as fat as john candy which really ruins it, it kind of looks like it kind of looks like john belushi's stunt double 
Um, but yeah, it's just baffling that these things got made. I mean, who who would have seen Uncle Buck and thought, I tell you what, here's this will make a great. I mean, that hardly makes a great film. It's terrible. <laughs> um, but they and they decided to make a TV show out of it. Yeah, well, you still get that now because um, NBC at the moment is uh, cr- trying to live down the fact that it's made a uh, TV spin-off of John Grisham's The Firm, which... Uh, they've done it recently, what? Is that yeah, it's on at the moment in the but States. Did someone think, well, we've waited 20 years, now we can do it? Yeah, but the thing is, it's not just based on it, it's a sequel to the film, which... The, where the main character is the same character played by Tom Cruise in the original. Oh, who plays him in the TV show? Uh, no one anyone's ever heard of. But it's, it's just really weird because you think no one is clamouring for a, a, a follow-up to the firm, you know, 20 years after the original, let alone one which actively follows on <laughs> from the film that's yeah. 20 years old and barely remembered. And they didn't make a sequel to that? No. Um there are no sequels in Grisham. It's just the same story recycled with a different kind of yeah. lawyer. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, h- and, and then you're thinking, how does it how does it stretch out to a series unless it becomes a generic lawyer show? In which case, why is it based on the? Film? <laughs> the yeah, and it, who? I mean, the John Grisham name is obviously something to put. Do they play on that, or is it just the firm? Uh, I think it's just the firm. I think they're just oh, ass- man. They're assuming that people are familiar enough with John. Like obviously. Grisham's a hugely successful novelist, but, uh, you know, in terms of uh, if you're going for cultural cachet in order to, like, attract viewers, it's the most baffling choice of project imaginable. Well, yeah, I mean, they could have gone with the Pelican Brief. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, or, uh, Which uh, enjoyed a, a brief resurgence in popularity when it was mentioned a few times in 30 Rock a few years ago, so, you know, an instant, there's, there's synergy there for there you. There you go, right there, you could just cross over. Um, but, yeah, I, I, that's, that is baffling, that. And it's not as if TV is struggling for kind of those kind of shows. Yeah. Um, how or uh, also there was a Teen Wolf TV series which is currently airing on MTV. Oh, a new Teen Wolf. Because there was an Wolf old series. Teen Wolf TV series. Yeah, there's a new one. It's more of a, just a straightforward dramedy which just happens to be about a guy who turns into a wolf. Wow. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, particularly good. Is, <laughs> is someone just commissioning shows based on the like the bargain bin? <laughs> uh, like a petrol station. I, I I assume that it must be getting to the point now where they they own the licenses to these things and they realise that they'll expire and someone else will get hold of it unless they do something with Quick, it. Quick, let's make a... In the uh, vein of, you know, Roger Corman's version of the Fantastic Four. Which I desperately, desperately want to see. I remember as a kid seeing it in the video shop oh, wow. on the on the shelf. I'm a child of the 80s. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, but never actually watching it because I remember that the thing looked like a giant turd. I'm pretty sure that it is on YouTube, or at least parts of it are. Oh, I know I've seen a few select scenes YouTube. from it, yeah. but um, yeah, th- that was a case where he somehow had got the rights to the Fantastic Four, and um, they had to, or, or whoever it was that he made it for, had the rights to the tra- Fantastic Four, and they were going to expire. Unless they made a film. I think the, the Captain America film from the early 90s may also yeah. be the same. Uh, Do you know what I'd absolutely love to see is in the Avengers this year, <laughs> in the summer, um, the Corman Fantastic Four just turn up. <laughs> just bowl hello. Just in exactly the same, yeah. and the same actors playing. They're like in their 60s. <laughs> that would be absolutely amazing. 
Um, speaking of the Avengers, um, that was a kind of a TV show that didn't quite work on screen. Mm. Um, did you ever see the film version of the I Avengers? I did. I saw it in the cinema. Wow. It was dreadful. It was absolutely fucking dreadful. And you must have been about 12 when that came out. Yeah, when did it come out? 1988? Eight, yeah, 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 I would have been, been about 12. Shit. No clue what the Avengers was. Just thinking, you know... I, th- I think I knew it had Sean Connery in, and I knew who he was. From Not only does it have Sean Connery, it has Sean Ryder in it as well. Who does Sean Ryder play? He in? plays a heavy well, typecast. Wow. I can't remember who he's, he's... He's got a partner in it as well. It's like... It's someone... It, it, I really want it to be Bez, <laughs> but, it, but it isn't. Um, but yeah, isn't that film about uh, he tries to steal the weather? Yeah. And he has an, an army made of teddy bears? Yeah, pretty much. Fucking hell, it's, it's, it's dreadful. It's really bad. It's one of those th- one of those moments, along with Stargate, I remember watching in the cinema and, and pretty much realising that I was watching a bad film. It's one of the key texts yeah. for my uh, <laughs> development as a critical thinker. Uh, I saw Stargate in the cinema twice. Oh, wow. Masterpiece. I wa- <laughs> walked out of it after about 45 minutes. Well, that's a weird thing, isn't it, Stargate? Because it was a, f- a film that kind of came out and it was n- no one was particularly yeah, I think enamoured. It made, I, I think it made a reasonable amount of money, but yeah, it wasn't... But it, uh, it, you know, you can tell a film isn't that successful because they didn't sequelise it. Yeah. It was... I don't know. It had a, a great flat top. Kurt Russell had an amazing flat top in it. Um, but it then had another life in television mm. with... Three kind of spin-off type shows of it. Yeah, you got Stargate um, Atlantis, Stargate, Stargate DSV, and oh, no, that's <laughs> uh, Sequest. Damn it! Uh, uh, it might just be called Stargate the right. series, and then a Stargate Universe, which was the last one that had Robert Carlyle. Um, oh man, it, I forgot he was in that. And um, I think that lasted maybe two seasons if not have you ever seen any of it it just looks really cheap like them running around the, like in woods in Canada yeah I've wa- I, I remember watching Egyptians. the first couple of episodes of the se- the original uh, Stargate Vanilla when it started um, and uh, <laughs> Stargate Vanilla yeah and I just uh, I just really wasn't for me obviously I didn't like the film so, yeah. the, film, so the TV series held little uh, little interest for me but um you know, it was it was quite cheap in the way that a lot of TV sci-fi is, or was up until a few years ago. Until uh, Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, that would be the one that, for me, you know, even though it's on the budget of uh, you know sci-fi, who don't make don't have huge budget, as evidenced by you know Sharktopus, Sharktopus. Um, and things like that. You know, that show managed to make their budget really go a very long way, mm. uh, and they kind of made cheapness their. Uh, an advantage because obviously the the ships in it are meant to be battered old pieces of shit so it doesn't matter that they don't look super duper high tech and uh well it, it makes a change i mean i've only ever seen the first series of the rebooted battlestar galactica mm. but um it's nice and obviously i grew up watching battlestar galactica with uh templeton peck in it and um they would just reuse the same effect shot from a different angle <laughs> and uh thankfully there's there's kind of very little of that and yeah, I think that that's one of the things that still kind of uh, sets that show apart from pretty much all TV sci-fi before and after, really. You know, um, maybe Firefly, but you know that was this pretty much the same uh, same production team behind it, really. The same uh, effects team, right? Did both. Um, I've never actually seen. I've seen uh, Serenity, but yeah. I've never actually seen Firefly. Yeah, Firefly's good. Um, obviously, 
it suffers from the fact that there's only 18 episodes and they essentially had to make two pilots because... 18 episodes? That's three whole series in British TV that terms. That is, yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the characters are really well written in that and the effects are pretty good. I mean, whenever they go to uh, go to a, a planet, it almost always looks like some bit of scrubland outside of L.A., um, the old Star Trek trick, yeah. a, qu- a quarry. Yeah, no, because it's you know kind of got a Western motif that kind of suits kind of it really. It. Sci-fi suits it a lot better, doesn't mm. it? Because you can kind of expand upon it um, and kind of uh, fill in some of the blanks left by the film. Which leads me to talking about um, there is upcoming. I'm not sure what the release date is. You may be able to fill me in, but the Star Wars live-action TV show, oh, which yeah. is obviously milking Lucas's teats just I mean as if this kind of property has not been kind of flogged uh, enough times. enough times that we're now going to see a live action TV show um, how do you feel about that um, I think it depends on who they get behind it because what's generally been the case with pretty much everything Star Wars related is the stuff that George Lucas is directly involved with post 1983 Actually, even post nineteen eighty, really, because mm. Jedi's got its problems. Um, it's rubbish. That's what his problem is. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it, whenever it's not him directly involved, they tend to be pretty good. Like you know, the expanded universe novels vary from author to author, but you know, generally, is there they, one where uh, uh, Luke fucks later? There might be. I've not read it, but um, it wouldn't surprise. Oh me. no, this was a novelization of. It was, this was one that was made between Star Wars and... Oh, before they realised yeah. they were related, right. Yeah, yeah. When it was okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, those ones kind of expand the universe, obviously. It's an expanded universe. But, you know, they offer more scope and they create new characters and new conflicts and things like that. And you know, th- those ones are, tend to be very interesting. And then um, there's a, an excellent series or a couple of series of animated episodes that were done by Jendi Tarkovsky. Oh, The Clone Wars. Yeah, The Clone Wars ones. It was directed, um, you know, he did Samurai Jack. Um, So there were these hyperkinetic um, little animation. The first season, I think they're all ten minutes long and they're essentially just fights. Right. And they're really, really sort of exciting and exhilarating. And then the second series is half an hour episodes and there's a bit more story behind them. So, um, so you know, if you get really talented people who have a passion for the the subject matter they're involved, then you know you can get really good stuff out of Star Wars. But if uh, George Lucas is really heavily involved in a TV series, my guess is it probably won't turn out very good. Yeah, I mean that's. I think you're right. I think uh, bringing in kind of uh, fresh ideas is 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 probably something that needs to happen because I think I I mean I don't really have a problem with. George Lucas if he wants to make those changes to Star Wars because as he keeps saying and you've got to respect it that it's his film and his name's on it and he wants it the way he wants it but what it does prove is A he's not a particularly good filmmaker mm. and B he doesn't really understand what people like about Star Wars Yeah. Um, um, so yeah um, I think having some fresh eyes I, I don't really know is Rick McCallum behind the the TV series I imagine he must be um, on some level because you know he's seems to be one of the the key people in driving a lot of the uh, Star Wars related business these days mm, yeah I don't really hold out much hope for it um, you've seen and uh, we mentioned this before we started recording but the Star Wars holiday special you've seen some of it yeah I've never been able to make it very far into it yeah that 
for those who don't know, was a very curious made-for-television family show, Christmas-themed. Yeah, Christmas variety show. Would it have been between Empire and Jedi? No, between Star Wars and, and Empire. Empire. It's about 1978. So before, you know, sequelizing Star Wars and making it incredibly... Uh, I'm not going to say incredibly dark. It's not like Bad Lieutenant Dark. <laughs> it's kind of darker. Yeah. Uh, it's still like a PG or is it a U? Isn't it? Uh, it probably is a U. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's not. It's not like dark. It's not irreversible dark. No. Um, but before going in that direction, they had a kind of a scene set, like a domestic uh, scene. I, the, the one I remember is a scene set in like Chewbacca's house with Chewbacca's family. Yeah, and it's all unsubtitled uh wookie wookie jargon mm. um yeah it's, it's dreadful um and is it is it banned not not banned like you know peeping tom is it uh is it, it was never released oh, and uh lucas says he would pay good he would pay to but have every copy of it destroyed if it was at all possible to get hold of all of them, which is impossible at this point because of the internet. What a humorless twat. <laughs> um, apparently Carrie Fisher's got a much more healthy attitude towards it, which is essentially she has a copy of it, and um, she used to put it on her television when she wanted people to leave at the end of a party. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and... Uh, the bit where she sings the lyrics to the Star Wars theme has to be seen to be believed because she's off her face. Um, <laughs> she had she had some dependency issues uh, yeah. back then, and uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's, it is dreadful. But the thing is, it's it's dreadful because there's such a sense of uh, obligation to it on everyone's part because Lucas didn't want to make it, but it was part of his deal. Um, I think it was it was something that was written into the contract about you know when when it was making the deal to the merchandise and things like that mm-hmm. that one of the things they they would have to make a holiday special and he was you know he was off prepping Empire Strikes Back so he basically handed it to uh, a blind deaf retard <laughs> handed it basically to sort of a bunch of people who didn't really know what Star Wars was including amongst them Bruce Valanche one of the, the hacks behind a lot of the Oscar um, uh, ceremonies wow. um, and they basically just sat, seemed to sit there and just go oh, it's about space isn't it um, and then just kind of wrote some terrible jokes around that Is, uh, Har- and Harrison Ford's in this they're all in it Harrison Ford Mark Hamill Carrie Fisher obviously I'm just glad Billy D. Williams wasn't around yeah he wasn't around to, to have it sullied but yeah the, the, uh, that the whole the whole thing's just such a misbegotten endeavour we've kind of been skirting around it but the uh, the one issue I really want to wanted to get into um which is probably the purpose for me wanting to choose television as, a, as the theme for, for for this week's podcast is it has occurred to me that we are going through a kind of what seems to be a never-ending golden age second golden age of television um with the period that probably begins with uh what, sopranos is that what we're thinking yeah i think um certainly that's kind of the the rise of HBO, which has then led to a trickle-down effect, because once HBO started proving that, you know, television could be art, you know, that's a, a very glib way of describing it, but mm-hmm. 
that's essentially what they seem to do. That's when everyone else kind of raises their game, and that comes at the same sort of time as the rise of the internet and um, DVD. So uh, people, there's there's a growth in the sort of the home market for for television in a way that kind of hadn't been before because you know back in the days of VHS to own a full series on took up a lot of shelf space yeah I mean but you know that was a really costly endeavour you know I think that kind of changes the way in which people experience TV a lot and also changes the commercial focus a little bit leads to sort of the fragmentation of the audience a lot which has allowed for a lot more idiosyncratic shows to kind of rise up because it's now no longer necessary for a show to be a massive rating success to stay on the air mm-hmm. and to have a, the level of freedom that a big hit would need because uh, you know the, I mean, the, the poster boys for these sort of things that are the series that are currently airing on NBC in the States you know Community, Parks and Rec uh, 30 Rock and The Office these sh- the, those shows with the ratings that they get would not have made it past you know an episode back in the 90s mm-hmm. like community the highest rating episode of community was the first episode which had 8 million viewers and you know back in you know 10 years ago a show debuts to 8 million viewers gets you know it'll get pulled from the schedule uh, but now you know community struggles to get 4 million because the 4 million are in the right sort of demographic that's enough to keep it that has been enough to keep it around for three seasons against all you know all expectation so I think you know uh, there's there's been a lot of changes in the landscape that have, have made this sort of technological and cultural situation in which shows that could not have existed ten years ago because they're too niche or because they're kind of too ambitious are now able to exist and last for you know a surprisingly long amount of time really mm-hmm. considering. Uh, how little they're watched. I think you, we consider it a golden age as well. Is is that um, film has kind of gone the other way? Um, and if we think about the the kind of last great um, cohesive artistic um, movement in filmmaking, probably would have been uh, New Hollywood. So between mm. sixty seven and eighty, those are the kind of the the bookends that someone or, chooses to give or, it. Or Maybe the rise of independence. Yeah, but I mean, I, I mean, I was looking at the, like you say, the poster boys of the kind of Sundance boom, mm. and it's not really anything to write to Moscow about, if I'm perfectly honest. I think that th- this seems like the close things where we've got a golden age where more or less every genre seems to have a, a, a huge amount of like very rich and interesting television sort of going on rather than one particular genre having an amazing time and everything else kind of like trundling along. Yeah, the work across the board is is so solid and and it all stems from pretty much two networks, which is HBO, um, which I believe that their slogan is, it's not TV, it's HBO. Um, but then AMC, which is something that's um, a newer network that kind of uh, sprung out of the... Where did, where did AMC come from? AMC have much a similar origin story to uh, HBO because HBO started off as a pay cable channel for, for watching boxing. Is it boxing? Uh, watching sporting events like boxing but also um, you know movies and so they started off showing 
premium sporting events and film, and then they sort of moved into original programming. Um, AMC is the American Movie Channel, is the is the original name, and I suppose still is their name, but they don't really call themselves that anymore. And they like KFC, yeah. In the last couple of years, you know, starting with Mad Men, moving into sort of scripted dramas. So that that's kind of where they're coming on there because they've been around for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. But it's only in recent years that they've made the leap, and much the same way Netflix has done that as well. Is then is the next stage of that because they obviously started off just being a rental site, and now they're commissioning original series, such as the proposed fourth series of Arrested Development. Is that a Netflix thing? That's a Netflix exclusive thing. You know, if 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 it happens, it's going to go on Netflix. Do you hope it happens? Because I mean, much I'm, I imagine you're a massive Arrested Development fan. I mean, I think you'd have to be um, mentally ill not to <laughs> like Arrested Development. Uh, yeah. It is probably the best sitcom of the last ten or fifteen years. I think probably. Yeah, I think so. Although I think uh, Parks and Rec has a chance to. Unseated. I do like Parks and Rec. The way they're going about it sounds interesting, which is uh, essentially they're doing ten episodes, and each episode is going to focus on a different character, which is their way of getting around the obvious problem that it's going to be really difficult to get all of that cast together at the same time. Um, but that, but that said, n- no one from that cast has particularly broken out. And no, I mean, but they're all they're, they're all kind of quite busy, and they and you know they've all got very. Judging from some of the adverts I saw during the Oscar telecast, Will Arnett is probably free and available, yeah. and using his catchphrases from Arrested Development to sell. I think it's Hulu. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's it's a good way of getting around the practicalities of essentially being like you don't need everyone available all the time, but if you can get a couple of people, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know if that would fit with the sort of the rapid fire pacing, which is what is one of the main appealing things about Arrested Development. It's not just that it's a incredibly clever show; it's that it's an incredibly fast show. And yeah. You know, that's why you had to watch it seven times to get all of the gags. All the you know? gags, yeah. I will get to my point eventually about uh, this um, golden age of television, whichever golden age it is, um, in that we are seeing uh, a time where uh, the showrunner, the person who... It it doesn't really exist in British television, but in American television, it's the the person who is uh, the kind of creative uh, driving force. Uh, It's very often the creator. It's more than often the creator, isn't it? More than Yeah, the, the, the exceptions would be... For example, uh, where a creator has been forced out of shows, such as happened on The West Wing for its last three seasons after Aaron Sorkin was fired, or uh, or Larry David left Seinfeld for the last series. Yeah, he left. So uh, he so uh, you know, there Jerry Seinfeld took over the show. Over. But it's it's someone who's who's, who's um, uh, personality and uh, creative. Yeah. Uh, well, the, uh, the Simpsons has had like twelve showrunners at this point. Yeah. They, yeah. Um, but the showrunner now. In the absence of any real uh, cohesive cinematic movement, the showrunner is kind of like the new American auteur. Mm. Discuss. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, and you can see that in kind of ways that are incredibly specific and ways that are incredibly general. If you want to look at probably the most specific example of an auteur in American television now is Louis C.K. and his show Louis. Louis which is about as auteurist a project as you can possibly get. Um, for anyone who's unfamiliar with it, Louis C.K. is a brilliant stand-up comedian. Who, probably uh, the best. Yeah, American I'd say he's, he's probably there. the best working. It's between him and Paul F. Tompkins for me. 
um and he created a show called louis which is kind of in some ways an extension of both his stand-up and his work as a short filmmaker which he's been doing since the mid-90s um and it follows a sort of fictionalized version of him and explores the various problems and neuroses in his life and each episode consists of either one or two short films essentially that explore they're kind of vignettes aren't they yeah and there's no continuity between them like in some no. some episodes you'll have a sister in other episodes his kids will be played by different actors yeah he'll have jobs on that he just there's no through line no but the, 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 probably the closest through line is the, the overall tone which is one of sort of dark darkly absurdist um and and some of it is not a comedy yeah the the bully episode from series one or the or the episode with where he's looking at his religious beliefs that's pretty with much tom, straight with tom noonan yeah yeah it's yeah. pretty much straight drama yeah but the the bully one he basically he gets picked on in a in a he's on a date isn't he with a woman and he gets picked on by some kind of frat boy and uh, she dumps him as the comedy element comes out, the fact that she finds his inability to defend her unattractive. Mm. So she breaks up with him, but then he hunts down the bully, and it just it just turns into this really kind of serious kind of drama mm. about, you know, nature and nurture, doesn't yeah. it? It's, it's a really kind of... It's so odd, but it's so affecting. And um, there is a moment in the last series of Louis which is so bold and so daring that I kind of, it makes my head kind of hurt, which is the Dane Cook episode. Oh, yeah. And for those of you who don't know, Dane Cook and Louis C.K. Um, have a history. Dane Cook is the most successful uh, comic in America, I think. He's the most popular. He's the the kind of U.S. equivalent of a Lee Evans or... A Peter uh, Kay. Or a Michael McIntyre. Yeah. For, uh, and he's, uh, but amongst comedians, he is incredibly unpopular. Yeah. Because um, I think there's probably some envy in there. Um, but also he has a cloudy history as to whether he was stolen material. And uh, there was a big deal about made. He, he nicked some jokes off Louis C.K. Uh, uh, a few years ago. And there's an episode of Louis where, for one reason or another, Louis is trying to get hold of Lady Gaga tickets. He's trying to get Lady Gaga tickets for his, his daughter, daughter for a birthday present. Yep. And he finds out that Dane, uh, Dane Cook is on the same agency. Yeah, and as he meets as him, um, and the scene plays out with uh, just two guys, Dane and Louis, sat talking in a, a dressing room. I think it's a dressing room. Yeah. Right? And um, it's really frosty, and then the, they just talk, and the mm. subject of Dane Cook stealing his jokes comes up, and the scene plays out. Now, if Dane Cook agreed to go on that show knowing what was scripted he's admitting guilt for stealing <laughs> jokes what i suspect happened and uh what this is what makes it amazing is that louis just said come on the show this is the setup and this is your chance to defend yourself and this is our chance to have it out and they literally have it out on camera because it doesn't resolve the issue from memory mm. they just talk and louis accuses him of stealing his jokes he doesn't at the start but no. he does at the end and dane cook tries to defend himself and blames louis for not ever saying that he didn't steal the jokes back in the day so it, it, it was this really weird 
pseudo documentary that I, cu- I couldn't quite believe was happening before our eyes that this kind of it wasn't even a public feud it was this really odd little uh, bit of history kind of comedic history was just playing out on as part of a um as part of a, a sitcom essentially i mean that struck me that struck me as an incredibly bold thing for both comics to do mm. and then uh, obviously back to this kind of auteurist thing you know he writes edits directs and stars in every episode which is you know almost unheard of on television especially because it's not like he has a, a limited run of episodes like he's only doing six he's doing mm. a full 13 including um in the second series an hour long one where he's uh, it's all about him going to afghanistan um so but, but you know louis ck that that's kind of the extreme example of an, an auteur in, in television where it's very much in the traditional sense uh, and then if you go by degrees, you get people like... I mean, most showrunners generally write pretty much every word that appears on the show um, in that they will probably rewrite every script. Mm-hmm. Um, an example of this would be Larry David and uh, Joey Seinfeld on Seinfeld for seven years. What they would do is they would hand out... You know, The, the stories would be broken down by the writer's team and then you know the writers would go off and write the episodes and then they'd give it to Jerry and Larry who would basically just sit in a room together and rehash everything you know make sure that all the dialogue felt like uh, felt like Seinfeld to Mm -hmm. them Uh, and that's very similar so I think that's kind of the base level of what all showrunners do and then you get kind of the kind of what would be kind of like the upper echelon of showrunners which are the people like Aaron Sorkin and David Milch uh, for example who basically take on like so much of the writing that you know it's it's basically as if the, the writers are only there as a team to support them like a support network mm-hmm. which is very much how Aaron Sorkin worked to the, uh, the chagrin of everyone who worked for him on the West Wing uh where essentially he treated all of his writers as a research team and then he would write every script himself, which is fucking insane. Mm. Um, But, you know, they very much put their views of the world on screen or their their views of of humanity in many ways. I mean, David Milch has spent three separate TV series on HBO, uh, Deadwood, John from Cincinnati, and now Luck, uh, exploring his personal interpretation of the human condition in many ways so i think that they're very he's probably at the forefront of using television as a an artistic medium and do you think the appeal is having more time and a broader canvas to explore the issues i think with the uh certainly the hbo model uh viewers of hbo have kind of been encouraged by this point by more methodical programs like the wire to not expect a show to sort of instantly kind of impose what it's about. Yeah, I mean, the David Simon ha- very much on the wire had a... Uh, it was fuck the casual viewer, wasn't it? Yeah. Like someone said, what about the casual viewer? He just said, fuck the casual viewer. Yeah. Because, you know, they don't make any concessions to anyone who drops in in the middle of an episode, mm. uh, in the middle of a series. You just... You have to be there from the beginning or you're, yeah. you're in trouble. Uh, and uh, so someone like David Milch feels that he can build a world over you know 10 episodes or whatever um slowly from the grounds up 
but not in a way again not in a way that makes any concessions to people because like if you watch you know Deadwood that show throws you in at the deep end with its incredibly elaborate and archaic language and um, at times it's impenetrable yeah if, to the uninitiated oh yeah it takes it takes a couple of episodes to adapt to that almost uh, kind of Shakespearean rhythm mm. uh, a bit and look is is similar because look is less Shakespearean, but it's more technical in right. its language. Uh, but but you know the thing with with a lot of Milch's shows, is it doesn't matter if you don't get everything, just as long as you get a sense of what's happening with the characters. Mm-hmm. And then you know when you rewatch it, and his shows are all highly rewatchable. Um, they, uh, you know, you could, as long as you have an idea of what's going on then that's that's really enough and then later on you can capture kind of like the this little finesses of it really um what's the um the pinnacle of this um current crop of shows from the sopranos to now so we're talking a, a period of uh what are we 10 15 years almost 10 15 years or so um what has been uh, the kind of standout shows for you um, that really drive home the idea that this isn't just a kind of flash in the pan of a few successful shows, but more a kind of uh, a changing of the way that people view television in relation to film and also the way that um, uh, filmmakers and uh, film actors in particular uh, view film. Because we're seeing now, I mean, uh, you just mentioned Luck. Uh, we're talking, it's directed by Michael Mann, the opening episode. Oh, you got your start in television, but... Uh, years ago you would have gone to film and then never gone back mm. uh, Boardwalk Empire as Martin Scorsese directed an episode um, and you, you're seeing actors uh, who wouldn't normally have ever gone on television mm. um, now uh, you know happily take it because that's where a lot of the work's done I mean Luck has got Nick Nolte Dustin Hoffman uh, Boardwalk Empire's got Michael Shannon Steve Buscemi these are actors that haven't you know they're not past their prime no it's not like they've fallen off and you know having to uh make ends meet yeah. by being on tv which is what it used to be the power is in in the writing and the quality of the writing is is much better in television than it is in mainstream films at the minute oh yeah um, absolutely so, so what what would be your, your picks for for um the kind of the top the top shows i mean obviously the wire is an excellent starting point i mean yeah um, it seems almost old hat now to say that it's the uh, the greatest TV show ever made. I mean, I'm not quite sure it is, mm. but it's it's. I think uh, it fumbles it a little bit with the fifth season. The fifth series. I mean, there's always that danger, isn't there, with TV shows that they will always ruin it with a series too far. Yeah, and I mean, I, d- I don't think it ruins it, but I do think that the uh, it takes the edge off a little bit. Yeah. Also, there's the, the, the my main problems with the fifth one is that a lot of the stuff in the Baltimore Sun feels like David Simon settling old scores. Yeah, and Which, not not particularly convincingly either. No, not and and you know in a fairly in, in sort of fairly broad ways. And the fake serial killer plotline, even though apparently it is based on something that can that has actually happened. Yeah, you know it feels a bit weird and quite broad. But I, I do think there's still a lot of really good stuff in the in the fifth season of The Wire. But you know I think that's a, that's a good example also of um, the slow movement and this is something I've, I've really wanted to write an article about for a while but it's such a, a broad topic it's kind of hard to uh, hard to kind of pinpoint is the movement away from a, a purely episodic style with maybe some slight arcs towards a more novelistic style or the idea of a, tel- a television series as 
one long film, mm-hmm. essentially, which is what The Wire is in many a ways. A 60-hour film. Yeah. It's less, yeah, because, uh, you know, the, the, the thing about fuck the casual viewer, it is, it is very much a case of if you start watching it from uh, eps- even just episode one of season three or something, that's like coming in... 45 minutes into a film really you know? or like they said um, picking up a book and opening it a random chapter yeah exactly which is it, they, they wanted to approach it as a, as a televisual novel yeah uh, which sounds like kind of wanky but uh, I think very, it's very it's much a great approach to it true and, and there has been a greater movement towards that with shows like you know Mad Men is very much that sort of thing and Mad Men has individual episodes that are very strong but they're very much the sort of thing where unless for example, if there's a there was an episode in the f- fourth se- season, so that's about like going back nearly two years now because mm. they've been on a bit of a break, uh, called the suitcase, which is a really great episode of television with the boxing match that they're not at. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is uh, you know it's a really really great episode of television, but it's the sort of thing where if you hadn't watched every episode that led up to it, you wouldn't understand why the kind of uh, unleashing of co- sort of resentments and anxieties between uh, Don and uh, Peggy. Peggy was is, is as sort of amazing as it is to watch and feel because you don't you need the history of the characters and in many ways that's kind of the, the thing that a lot of post shows in sort of post The Wire have taken on is the idea that you can maybe have shows where not a lot happens in any individual episode but in terms of the emotional rewards and story rewards, they, you know, they, those sort of things can wait until, you know, the second to last or last episode of a season, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, The Wire's up there. Um, I'll put Deadwood in there, obviously, because we've, we've mentioned it. I probably like Deadwood slightly more than The Wire. Mm. I think that the setting is more appealing to me. Yeah. Also, I think um, D- Deadwood, even though it's incredibly violent, and sweary, and at one point a man's eye gets dragged out of his head. Yeah, um, literally dragged out of his head. Yeah, that's a fucking great scene. But I remember the first time watching it because I was so deadly afraid that Dan was going to die. Right in that scene, because I love street brawl. Because I love Dan; he's such a good character. Mm. Um, that when he ended up winning in the most horrible way possible, yeah. I was I was really pleased and horrified. But um, that is the ugliest <laughs> fight in television history. I know, and it's great because it goes on for fucking ages. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, but the thing that I, I think is is quite appealing about Deadwoods is, despite all of that, it's in some ways quite a hopeful show um, because it is essentially about the idea that people can come together to forge a community. Mm. They can do it through horrible acts of destruction and self-destruction but you know essentially what a lot of the the progression of a lot of characters in that show is they kind of learn to trust each other in you know maybe begrudging ways they have to exist alongside each other Uh, and it's kind of the idea I mean something that David Milch has explored a lot in his shows is the idea of humanity as kind of a single organism and the idea that if everyone bands together things can get better and that's something that in his show, John from Cincinnati, which is a fucking crazy show, which mm. is a phil- philosophical show about surfers who essentially meet an angel. Um, that's very... There's a there's a long dream sequence in the sixth episode of that, which is essentially all about how these disparate, damaged characters are going to completely alter the progress of humanity by being nice to each other, which uh, is strange um, mm. and doesn't really make a huge amount of sense. But is uh, in many ways that is kind of 
David Milch's uh, view of, of humanity uh, writ large. Um, I'm going to throw Breaking Bad in there, uh, mm-hmm. which is, um, I, I watched it uh, all four seasons two weeks ago in the space of about ten days. I watched um, season four in two sittings, including nine episodes back to back, which was pretty kind of far out and I was, yeah. I was I started to lose it a little bit but um that's that show is truly remarkable yeah um uh in terms of asking very difficult questions about morality and deceit it's a a, a concept which seems so daft yeah that a high school um a chemistry teacher finds out he's got terminal cancer and becomes a crystal meth uh producer yeah um that that idea in itself is so ridiculous that and with a with an actor in the lead role who was best known as the kind of neurotic dad in a live action version of the simpsons essentially malcolm in the middle um it sh- it, c- it shouldn't have been as good as it is um and to try and keep us on side with two characters who we know are good deep down we're pretty sure they're good deep down yeah but they do absolutely despicable acts. Yeah, is is. I think one of them's very, very deep brave. down at the end of season four. Maybe not so much the other one. Uh, yeah, but I mean, if you, you don't have to wind back too far. I mean, the second episode of the entire series as to what they do with those two bodies. That's true. Is is, is, is I mean that what a way to. I mean, I'm not going to. I will spoil it. But in 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 the episode two of series one, the two protagonists melt two bodies in hydrochloric acid yeah uh and then it's generally downhill from there <laughs> yeah i mean it, that's the great thing about breaking bad is it is an exploration of uh of corruption in a lot of ways uh the idea that evil kind of emanates outwards in some ways and and the idea that uh, one compromise, moral compromise, leads to the next, mm-hmm. and then eventually it just destroys everything around you, like a cancer. Yeah. Um, another show that deals with that theme, which I think would be included on the list of the, the greats of the modern era, is uh, The Shield. Right. Okay. Which um, explored that film very well, that fi- theme, sorry, very well over seven series. It's actually a good example of a show that kind of was made during the transition from uh, sort of more purely episodic to a uh, more novelistic approach because it, it started in 2002, same year that Wire did, um, and finished in 2008. And around about 2006, they stopped having a strong an emphasis on a sort of a case of the week thing, and it became more about the ongoing attempts by the character of Vic Mackey, played brilliantly by Michael Chiklis, to stay ahead of the people who are trying to prove that he murdered another cop. Right, okay. Which everyone knows he did, because it's the thing that happens at the end of the pilot. Um, He shoots another cop right in the head, and then, you know, the whole series unfurls from that point, and it's about him trying to escape justice whilst also trying to be a policeman and a father and things like that. And um, along the way, he essentially destroys the lives of everyone he knows (laughs) because of trying to keep this terrible secret from coming out. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, that's one of the things that sort of television does really well nowadays is is it just wonderfully... You can just explore a theme so fully over such a long period of time and in a way that's really entertaining. Like The Shield 
is one of the most sort of frenetic and thrilling shows I've ever seen. Like, and, and, and the way each season is structured is it kind of ratchets up the tension in a very similar way to Breaking Bad does. Until it's kind of, you, you have no idea how this character is going to kind of work his way out of it. Mm. Another example I'd cite, because uh, these have all been cable shows we're talking about at the moment, so I'll talk about a network show, mm-hmm. is uh, Friday Night Lights, the uh, show about football in a uh, Texas town, which... Uh, Was a book, then a film, then a TV series, and now it's going to be a film again. Yeah, if uh, Peter Berg can get the uh, funding together, he wants to make a follow-up sort of series of movies based on the TV series, right. which seems like financial suicide, considering how difficult it was to keep the show around. Mm-hmm. But um, that show, I think, is, a, is another show that kind of, I, I would say, rivals Mad Men and Breaking Bad for some of the best acting on, on television. Uh, and some of the the best uh, writing, and it's also a beautifully shot show. Lots of beautiful digital handheld photography and wonderfully realised uh, football games. But that show, uh, again, sort of in terms of uh, the idea of exploring a theme over five seasons, that show did a great job of exploring the idea of hometowns as a place that are both sort of a place of comfort and you know home. And as a place that's also as places that are also really restricting and kind of hard suffocating. To, and suffocating and hard to break away from because everyone in that show is defined by their attitude towards the town of Dillon, Texas. I've, it's either the place that they want to stay their whole lives or it's the place that they're desperate to get away from, and people's opinions change over the course of the series. But it's just such a a beautiful. Uh, evocation of sort of small town life in in a lot of ways, and the, the the characters in it are just so beautifully drawn. Everyone in that show feels like a real person, and uh, you know it's 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 kind of like a, a Larry McMurtry novel turned into a television show. You know, just the idea of everyone being sort of sad and melancholic, but finding some transcendence through, you know love or sport or whatever it is that's going on in their lives or love of sport mm. um should we wrap this up now with a couple of um uh kind of uh, hidden gems that you uh, might have enjoyed uh on television that you'd like to recommend to um the three people that listen to this podcast uh it? yeah i think um freaks and geeks is probably uh one that leaves off the top of my head the show created by paul feig director of bridesmaids um and judd apatow super producer of many things mm-hmm. uh, which was a very keenly observed comedy drama set in a uh, high school in I want to say Illinois um, although it's been a while so I'm not sure if that's That's correct. just your John Hughes fascination um, set in, in sort of the 1980s and it's all about these sort of actually fairly large ensemble of uh, you know sort of it's about eight or nine sort of main characters and it's all it's just one of the best uh, recreations of the high school experience I've ever seen, and again, like sort of Friday Night Lights, it's not a show with a sort of great narrative thrust, but it's just these lovely. It's just got these brilliantly realised characters who are, you know, so endlessly sort of likable, and it's the sort of series where you think, you know, if, if any show you, I would have loved to have seen run for like twenty years or mm. whatever, it would have been that show because I would have loved to have seen what happened with all of those characters. Yeah, I'm going to throw uh, a last one in uh, with uh, the show that I'm kind of working my way through at the minute, which is it's, it's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, a 
an FX show. FX is another network that does mm. quite a lot of. Uh, Louis is on on FX, FX. Um, but it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Is it's been running for seven seasons now, just kind of slightly under the radar. It's one that's not really talked about in in, in the same way as other one other shows like Arrested Development or things like that. Um, but it's it is yeah essentially the story of of four people who work in a bar and own a bar. Um, who just get into a series of disgusting, morally repellent adventures, and every character in it is a degenerate asshole <laughs> who will do anything to um, to kind of put one over on the other, whether they're related, they're best friends, or what. It's it's just a a, a masterwork of of, of cruelty <laughs> and uh, um, not even moral ambiguity like a lot of the, the one of the threads that go through like shows like The Wire and, and Mad Men and, and Breaking Band is a moral ab- ambiguity in uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia everyone is an arsehole <laughs> and uh, unafraid to uh, show have you got one more? To- yeah sure uh, my one would be uh, another FX show called Archer which is a animated uh, sitcom about uh, the office life of a uh, of a super spy um, right. Not Chuck. No, it's not Chuck. Oh, thank Christ for that. Um, it's a it's an it's a cart it's an animated show, and it's just one of the funniest shows on television at the moment because it's a mixture of spy pastiche and office comedy. Right. Um, so a lot of it is to do with the fact that everyone in this office hates each other. Right. And they all hate working with each other. And the main character, the super spy Sterling Archer, is an absolute cock. <laughs> He's just like an absolute dick who's uh, <laughs> cruel to everyone he knows, uh, endlessly insultive and, and, and just horrible to be around. But, you know, is kind of endless, like hugely likable for that same reason because you just kind of think, well, you know, he's rich and a spy. Of course he's going to be an absolute bastard. Mm. That, that's a very like we're talking about the new Hollywood thing and 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 the the golden age of of, of television we, we're living through now is that um, the anti-hero is so important to both mm. uh, and now it seems like there's a kind of real resurgence in um, getting behind uh, complex individuals or people who are just stone cold dicks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. I think that is just about enough of TV um, and films on TV and TVs about films and all that stuff um so yeah we'll, we'll we'll wrap it up here sure and um yeah we'll be back talking about something else next time there you go uh, stay tuned bye-bye bye